0: You're listening to Arc Radio Podcast.
1: Salamu welcome and a very warm welcome to everybody here today. My name is Samir Ansari and I'm the Chief Executive at Anna, the Muslim Women's Resource Centre. We're really excited to be creating spaces where we've got Muslim women panellists talking about feminism, talking about women's rights, talking about equality with others in the room today. We hope to replicate this event as well. And would be really interested in getting your feedback. So you will have noticed we've got evaluation forms on your on, in front of you with the table. So please do complete them before you go. This evening you are going to have an opportunity to hear from four Muslim women panelists who I describe as she And before that, I, we're going to give the platform to Kazala Avan and Aisha to tell us a more about Amma the Muslim Women's Resource Centre and Gumsa. I also at this point want to just ask if you could put your hands up if you would describe yourself as a feminist. So put your hands up if you would describe yourself as a feminist. About two thirds of the There was a survey done as a part of International Women's Day and it's interesting, 40% of people say feminism has gone too far. So that'll be an interesting question for our panellists, has feminism gone too far? But this year's theme for International Women's Day was Press for Progress. And a lot of the time around International Women's Day, one of the things that we hear is we, we've got the celebration around how far we've come as women. This year in particular, there's been a lot of celebration events around 100 years of women, some women, getting the right to vote. And when I was reflecting on this point around how far women have come, I was thinking about, who are we talking about? Who are, who are these women? And earlier on, I was saying to one of my colleagues, actually, for me, it's white women with privilege As and this is why events like this are really important about having dialogue around Muslim women so before I pass on um, to my colleague Ghazala to tell you a bit more about I and mean, Muslim Women's Resource Centre I just want to kind of highlight globally some of the things that are affecting primarily Muslim women uh, alongside the genocide that's happening uh, and the Rohingya Muslims particularly The Rohingya women are being raped, sexually assaulted, and being murdered. And this is happening now, and it feels like we're turning a bit of a blind eye to that. There's oppression of women in Palestine, Yemen, Afghanistan, and many other countries. Here in the UK, in terms of Islamophobia, we're seeing an increase. And actually, some of you may also be aware, um, there's been a list that's been in circulation called Punish a Muslim Day on April the 3rd. And one of the, the, in terms of the point system, it was um, ripping the hijab of a woman. A headscarf, I think it actually said. Um, So, Muslim women are most likely to be the victim of a hate crime. Across Europe, we're seeing the hijab ban. It's estimated that 14 million children, there'll be 14 million child brides globally. There are many women and girls that are being denied their opportunities for employment and education. Also globally, one in three women will be abused in her lifetime. Over 130 million women globally have undergone FGM, female genital <laughs> mutilation. These are all our issues, these are all feminist issues. Moving forward, I'd like to invite Ghazala Van, the regional manager for and Muslim Women's Resource Centre, to share a wee bit about the work that we do. And then Aisha, who's the sister social convener at Gumsa. As you know, this event has been organised by um,
2: the organisation Amina Muslim Women's Resource Centre, or MWRC for short. And uh, this organisation has been around for 21 years now, actually. This is our 21st birthday, is that correct? And this organisation basically came about because 21 years or even longer, um, people recognised that the needs and the voices of Muslim women weren't being heard it was important for an organisation to particularly look at the needs of Muslim women um, across Scotland. So that's the reason why Amina came about. And just to add, sorry, we've got three offices. So we've got offices in Glasgow, um, Dundee and Edinburgh, but we cover the whole of Scotland. So we've got a few projects. The one, of the, I suppose one of our key projects is called um, it's the Helpline and Development Project. And what this project essentially is about is it provides the direct connection with, with the women in the community. So we get calls on our helpline from 10am till 4pm every day, Monday to Friday. And these calls can be about anything. Um, a lot of the times it's about family issues. A lot of times it's about abuse, psychological, physical, mental, financial abuse. Um, often, you know, it's about just general information that the people are looking for. So we try and signpost women on to relevant organisations. The, the other area of the work that comes under this umbrella is the schools work we do and this is where we're looking for some of you potentially to get involved if you'd like to um, and what this work entails is it entails going into schools and speaking to pupils and trying to really take away the stereotypes that are there around Muslim communities um, and and you know what those stereotypes are. The Violence Against Women Girls Women and Girls project came about as a result of the Helpline project. So in a sense we picked up a need like I said earlier on, violence against women calls for the rewards coming through. So this project was then set up with money from Scottish Government and essentially what this project does is we try and do work around trying to change people's attitudes and behaviour around violence against women and girls. We recognise there's other other organisations that deal with, that uh, have refugees, for example, that deal with intervention but our work primarily is about um, um, prevention and trying to change people's attitudes. Some of the work that we've done um, we've created lots of really good films and resources and these are accessible on the YouTube channel um, we've recently been doing lots of work around um, self-care for women because I think what women tend to do is forget about themselves because they're caring too much for other people in society. Um, We also um, produced a play called If I Had a Girl. Now this play was a professional production and it went around all of Scotland and it was extremely well received Um, and again that was around trying to raise the issue of violence against women and girls and making people aware of what happens. And one of the key things that we do is we work with men as well, so we have delivered workshops right across Scotland um, to different men's groups around um, violence against women and girls and what what the, what the rights of women are. Um, this is the befriending project that we have. The befriending project um, is um, in Dundee and um, currently we provide befriending service purely based on the fact that a lot of women are really, really isolated. More recently, we've started doing this on the phone as well. So, we've got a few people that we befriend and help and support over the phone. Again, a, a more recent um, addition to one of our um is this project around refugee support. And um, this is again based in Dundee. With a lot of the new Scots arriving, the Syrian communities arriving, um, we've basically tried to support the Syrian communities to try and be included as part of Dundee and um, the wider mm-hmm. community. Um, a lot of that is about just supporting people in basic things, or in basic things like you know university access, um, employment, housing, lots of lots of those kind of issues, and just making sure people are not isolated. Building bridges is is a new project of ours. It's just going to hopefully start very very soon. Again, this one is based in Dundee, and um, it's about intergenerational work. So we recognise that there's a lot of gap now between the different ages. You've got maybe perhaps eighty year old, seventy year old people, sixty year old people who are not necessarily relating so well with the younger women that are maybe in their teens or in their 20s or even 30s. So this project is about bringing people together. And then we've got an employability project. Um, the employability project was set up on you know based on the fact that there is discrimination going on and there isn't equality in terms of employ- employment. If you look at some of the statistics there, they um, demonstrate that so the project has been one of our um, key projects that's been running for now two or three years, I think. These are our contact details, and like I said, there's lots of scope for people to volunteer and get involved. One is, um, talked about the school's work, the other one is around the helpline. We really want to make sure that we have younger women accessing our helpline as well, and as young women yourselves, it would be great if you could get involved and tell us what we need to do to make that happen, um, or to make it better. So, you know, please do get involved in that. The, the third thing that we, we'd be keen to get your involvement in, and we're just going to show this film to you very soon, is the it's a campaign that we're launching actually today as part of the International Women's Day. Um, and the campaign is called Reclaim the Name. And this, this basically what this campaign does is it helps to empower Muslims, and particularly Muslim women, To challenge some of the language that's around about Muslim communities. Um, And it builds on this campaign that we had before called I Speak for Myself. I don't know if any of you heard of that before about building that and hopefully we'll be building on this um, Reclaim the Name campaign over the next couple of years. So again, it'd be great if you got involved in that and, you know, even we set up some sort of steering group whereby we could take this campaign forward. So there's there's lots of ways that you could be involved and we really look forward to that. We really welcome that. Salam
0: everyone. I'm Aisha and I'm part of Gums' Exit Committee this year. And we've wanted to do an event like this for a really long time now. Um and alhamdulillah, we're so glad for it to happen. Um, having, having an all women's panel really eh, sorry, really empowers us, um, as female members of our own ISOC. And we'd really like to thank Amina for making this happen. And if you'd like to come along to any one of our events at Gumsa, our next big event is going to be the Gumsa Iftar. And we hope to do this at the River Palace, inshallah. So everyone is welcome to this event, so please do bring along your family, your friends, everyone. It's always a really good event to attend. Um, And we hope to see you
1: there, and I hope you do enjoy this event as well. Thank you. Okay, we're going to move over to our panel discussions. But prior to that, we're going to hear from our panellists. So first up is Talat Yaqub. Talat is the director of Equite Scotland and the chair of Women 5050. She has a background in public affairs, campaigning, social research, training and development across equalities issues. She's previously worked on education rights, women's representation in politics and tackling violence against women. Before joining Equate Scotland, Tulloch managed a number of projects in the third sector. She's worked in the Scottish Parliament and also worked as a consultant for organisations focused on women's social and economic equality and I'm a total fan girl of Talitha. <laughs> I'm going to hand over
3: to Talitha. Yes, okay. So, uh, as and um, thank you very much for the invitation to come speak to you today. So, thank you to everybody at um, the Amazon Women's Resource Centre. Um, I was I was given a brief, and I was asked to come and chat about why it is that I would define myself as a feminist, and um, why what feminism means to me, um, and what what that's like as a Muslim woman. And there's kind of three different things that I want to talk about. And one is about um, where people mislabel Muslim women. So the, this uh, fetishisation of Muslim women being victims is the first thing I want to talk about. The second I want to talk about is how we educate about the value of Muslim women to, within our community. And the last is um, culture versus religion. Um, and a little bit of the, how those two things don't necessarily align at all, all, all times. So, um, thank you for the kind introduction, a little bit about me, uh, I've been calling myself a feminist since I've been about 15, 16 years old, so I was really hard work at school, as you can imagine, um, I've been really hard work in my own family, and I think they're still waiting for me to come out of whatever phase this is, um, I'm in my 30s now, so I'm pretty sure it's here to stay, um, and the majority of my family are kind of on board. Questionably, but kind of on board. Um, but that's okay, because we're all going on a bit of a journey. But the reason why um, I talk a lot about being a feminist, but being a Muslim feminist, is because there's this idea that those two things don't match. There's this very ill-informed, um, prejudiced idea that this doesn't, this doesn't make sense. To the point where I've worked in a feminist organisation that prides itself on being inclusive, and I once got told by somebody in the senior management team This is whilst I was doing the consultancy. Um, I must applaud you for being Muslim and attempting to be feminist. An equalities organisation. An organisation that should know much, much better than that. Um, I pride myself on being both of these things. I pride myself on there being no cognitive dissonance in those two things being within one person. They can and, and should be there. But she was speaking, this person was speaking from a place where we have been surrounded by uh, an idea of Muslim women, meaning victim. Mm -hmm. There's this idea, whether it is in um, Western media, whether it is in mainstream media, particularly, that um, Muslim women are oppressed, that if they choose to wear a headscarf, that they are being told that they have to wear that headscarf, if they are... Um, involved in their families, if they are stay-at-home mums, it's not through choice, it's because they're being told and they don't have entitlement to a career. The only time you will hear the Daily Mail talk about the rights of women is to point out that Muslim women don't have rights. Otherwise, they're usually talking about how terrible feminism is. But that one time that you will have either right-wing media or, or people who are usually very quick to tell me about how feminism is so bad, they're the first to also pick up the idea that Muslim women are oppressed and therefore we need to be thinking about them. Yeah, Have you ever come across that? The one time there'll be a Daily Mail headline to talk about why we need to do more for women. It's about those poor Muslim women who are othered and somewhere over there. But we're not, we're right here. And we deserve to be treated like we're right here. We deserve to be treated like we are women who exist as citizens in the UK and as citizens across the world. And it is that that created my feminism. So really actually what I'm saying is, I got really angry and realised I was a feminist. That's, that's pretty much the journey that I've been on and that's okay, I'm still pretty angry, but we can, we're slowly making change. On a personal level, um, my feminism has come a lot from the fact that I am one of eight girls. Okay? So I have seven older sisters, there's eight of us and we're all girls. And that's where you say shadow. Yeah? Thank you. It's a bit late, but okay. Um, but I grew up in an environment in which actually that wasn't appreciated. Okay. Um, I don't know if this is an experience that anybody has had in the past, but I grew up in a place where my, uh, my, I mean, my, my my mother would be out and somebody would say, oh, is this your daughter? And I'd be dancing about in the background, whatever it is that I was doing. And um, my mum would say yes and then they would say, oh, so how many daughters have you got? You know, that normal conversation that aunties make with themselves. And uh, my mum would say, actually, she's the youngest. I've got eight daughters. And they'd say, Masha, and they'd go, so no sons? And uh, my mum would go, no. And they'd go, okay, well, maybe that's just what I wanted. But they said it in a way where they felt sorry for my mum. They said it in a way as if we weren't enough. Actually, we were. We are eight phenomenal, independent, educated, notorious women. Let's just be honest.
4: Um,
3: And my parents have never felt the the loss or the, the lack of a son. I've made it my priority never to let that happen. And that does sometimes mean that I need to do the DIY in the house. That. That is now my forte, um, in fact, um, yesterday um, I painted a ceiling and built a bed all by myself, but that's a, you can praise me for that later. Um, but I was in an environment in which um, I was made to feel like it was a bit of a shame that I was born. And has anybody ever experienced that, a tilting of the head, The well, what you really wanted was a song. Yeah, you're nodding. You understand what I'm saying. I also grew up in an environment, and it doesn't happen as much anymore. But um, you distributed sweets when you had a boy, and you gave out ladoo. You didn't really bother doing it if you had a daughter, right? So right off the bat, when a daughter is born, she isn't being given the same status. Yeah. So that's the, that, and that is a very real experience that I had growing up. Now my sisters have gone on to have daughters and sons, and they've distributed sweets no matter what child they had. And they've enjoyed it, and there's been enthusiasm behind that. And that has changed, changed considerably. But actually, when I was growing up, there was clearly a tilt to the side. That's okay, maybe that's how I wanted it. It is how I wanted it. That is absolutely how I wanted it. And we're very proud of the fact that that's how I wanted it. But all of those things, those experiences, contributed to me now calling myself a feminist, me now campaigning vigorously for women particularly Muslim women and women of colour, to be recognised for the equal, educated, informed citizens that they, that they are. So that's kind of my, my journey was very personal to becoming a feminist. And then it became a professional full-time job. I wasn't really meant to become a professional full-time job, but I'm pretty much a 24-7 feminist by profession now. Um, And I work on two areas. Um, I work on women's uh, lack of representation in politics. Um, Just in case you're wondering, there has never been a Muslim woman in the Scottish Parliament. There has never been a woman of colour elected to the Scottish Parliament. With 1,200 councillors, only three of those are um, women of color we You've got a long, long way to go. Um, And the rest of the time, I work on getting women and supporting women in science, technology, engineering, mathematics and built environment where they are very underrepresented again. So those are the kind of areas that I work on. So my, my feminism came from a very personal place. My experiences as a child, my experiences with, with eight women, with seven older sisters and my mum and eight women around me at all times. It came from the way in which community and society responded to those eight girls, those eight daughters. And it came from the inequality and experiences that I had as I grew up and that professionalisation of feminism, essentially. But it definitely came about and has become a, a really strong feature of mine because of the victim story said on behalf of Muslim women. I hear a lot of people talking about us. I don't see a lot of people letting us speak for ourselves. And there's this really good quote that says, rather than being a voice for the voiceless, pass the mic. And it's long overdue that Muslim women were past the mic. And that's something that I feel very, very strongly about. The second is about how we educate about Islam. And that's a thing that I, that is a feminist issue for me. When I grew up, um, I was told, and I don't know if this is the same for other people, but I, I recited the Quran again and again and again until you knew it. Yeah? I wasn't told about the, the stories of Islam, I wasn't told about the history of Islam, I wasn't given that sense of belonging that actually I wanted. And I didn't get until I went back and cared about it enough in my twenties, went back and read translations, understood, read the stories and went, that's what that was about. I was repeating it, learning it off by heart and respecting it, but actually I wasn't knowledgeable about it. And what we have started doing now, and you'll notice when, you, when children are going to, to masjids, going to mosques, they're telling stories, they're helping children understand Islam better. And one of the things that I'm really keen on that we do is we tell the story of the formidable woman in Islamic history. That's something we should be really proud of, and that's a, a, an excellent way for us to be able to change that victimhood story. Actually, they were phenomenal Muslim women then, and they are phenomenal Muslim women now. And the last thing that I want to chat about, because I have been told I have 10 minutes, and it's not... we're okay? Okay. Um, the last thing I want to talk about is a, an aspect that makes me very feminist within my Islam is the difference between culture and religion. Mm-hmm. Um, In our religion, um, Islam was one of the first to pursue democracy and give women the vote. It was one of the first to give women the rights to property and the rights to seek divorce.
5: It's
3: a story that doesn't get told very often, but actually it was ahead of itself in many ways. But I happen to believe that religion and culture have become separated from one another. And I think that we would have a more progressive, a more equal space for women if we were to read and interpret the religion in its true form, as opposed to patriarchal culture, which has seeped into the way in which we conduct ourselves as a community. The idea of dowry, the way in which we treat uh, wives, the way in which we treat mothers, the second class citizenhood. That we create for women where women exist how they should dress what standing they have in community actually has been influenced by patriarchal culture which has brought us further back than what the religion had ever intended and i think there's a lot to be proudly feminist about within that arena if we were to be more honest about islamic practices as opposed to cultural influences that much like the rest of society this is not unique to some At all. It's not unique to Islam. It exists in every society where we have patriarchal influences in the society which are othering women. And we need to be brave and strong. And I don't mean we as in Muslim women. I mean we as in Muslims. And I include brothers in the room and I include Muslim men in this. That actually it is your responsibility to call out fellow men who do not treat their Muslim sisters with the dignity and respect that they deserve and they are entitled to. And let's just be honest, we've all seen it, we all know it. That in a nutshell is why I'm a feminist. And there'll be lots of people who the question about feminism going too far. Well, no, because right now I'm underrepresented in politics, I'm underrepresented in science, technology, engineering, mathematics, I'm underrepresented in decision making, I'm underrepresented in economic equality, I'm underrepresented in social equality, and I'm underrepresented in, in the growth of this country and the world. Along with FGN, child brides, um, prostitution, rape being used as, as a tool in war. No, I don't think we've gone far enough. In fact, I don't think we've scratched the surface. The reality is we should be embracing feminism in its right way, embracing feminism to make ourselves better Muslims. And that, for me, would be a rally call for all of you to pursue as well. Thank you.
1: I was just going to say, uh, don't please ever come out of that phase that you're in. Do please stay 24-7. So, conscious of time, I'm going to move on to our next speaker, who I was delighted to rejoin Amman Women's Resource Centre recently, um, so she was headhunted for this. Um, Sarah Todd. Sarah is a graduate from the University of Glasgow with a Masters in Social Science and currently is working with Amina. Her passions include dismantling white privilege and patriarchal power structures, decolonisation and amplifying voices of women of colour Sarah believes in the transformative power of education and has previously worked as a primary school teacher in Morocco, Egypt and Thailand. (laughs)
5: Um, So, I've been asked to speak to you with a slightly different perspective, which is of someone who was not born into a Muslim family and someone who chose that way for herself. Um, So, having been raised as a somewhat lax Catholic, um, I was no stranger to a sphere um, of religion where women often bear the brunt of the religious commands that are given. The concept of original sin was heavily emphasised in my religious upbringing. The notion that Eve had bitten the apple and damned all of humankind to a life of suffering, war and poverty. This woman who had been created as an afterthought on the whim of a man to satisfy his desires, um, regardless of whether she was into him, you know um (laughs) period pains pregnancy childbirth and domestic servitude were the price that we women had to pay for her mistake um my mother a woman who loved her faith was ostracized from her church for choosing to no longer remain married to my father she was effectively told that her god didn't care about her for that choice Asking questions around my faith while I was at school, I was told that it was not feminine to ask questions, to cause a scene, and that I should just have faith in the word of God. Ultimately, this played a part in my leaving of the religion. Sadly, I saw these same power structures replicated in society, and remember being around 13 when I became acutely aware that boys could occupy spaces that women simply could not. Growing up in a society that placed my worth solely on my looks and taught me that my body was public property. I came of an age where I was taught by the women around me that the only way to avoid harassment was to tell a man that I was spoken for that I was already another man's property. There would be apologies to my brother or a male friend that was with me who I had claimed was my boyfriend. For violating my body in a public space. I'm really sorry bro, I didn't, I didn't know. But never to me. My pain was never worth noting. Misogyny, to me, was something that simply had to end. Having grown up relatively unaware of Muslims, when I moved to university I was perplexed in my first tutorial One of my classmates was very vocal about his refusal to work with a Pakistani hijabi because he was concerned that she would have a bomb. He continued to white mansplain to me how oppressed she was and that even if she didn't have that rag on her head, he still wouldn't. I was infuriated and I felt powerless. I was angry at myself for not knowing what she believed and not being able to stand up for her it never occurred to me that she could have stood up for herself if she knew what he was saying. So I decided I would educate myself around Muslim women. I went out and bought all the standard white people books, not without my daughter, books on FGM, you know, the classic oppressed Muslim woman. (laughs) Um, It didn't take a genius to realize that these women that I read about in my books were not reflected in the Muslim women I would see on campus. They were articulate, educated, and basically badass. Eventually, I bought a Quran, and upon attempting to read it, I found the language very masculine. And I really couldn't relate. I searched for a Quran that was translated by a woman, and represented how a woman would view what was being said. I actually found that book about three months ago, so, you know, it took me a while. <laughs> um, I did, however, discover a female teacher of Tafsir, and I would listen spellbound as she told me stories of great women in Islam. She told me about the Queen of Shiva, the sole example of good leadership and power used correctly in the Quran, and she cringed as she told me how male scholars were so intimidated by her that they would speculate about her physical build and her weight rather than talk about the amazing woman that she was. She taught me about Hajar and how her actions impact hundreds and thousands of Muslims every year during the Hajj. She taught me how Musa's sister was chosen to keep him safe when his mother thrust him into the water as a baby, and not his older brother. We know, as Muslims, that we should read the Qur'an, reflect on the stories it tells, and find our own challenges reflected in them to draw strength from them, navigate our paths, and draw closer to our Creator. We see wonderful examples of the Qur'an, and we know that it's as alive at the time of Revelation as it is now. We read stories of Asiya, the wife of Pharaoh, a man who literally thought he was God, being tortured and asked to denounce her faith. We read of her refusal, and we know of her strength. We read of Somaya. The first of the companions of Rasulullah who laid down her life for Islam, who refused to denounce her faith even under torture. Still to this day, male scholars refer to her as the first female martyr of Islam. She is in fact the first fe- the first martyr of Islam, full stop. We read stories of the daughter of Shuaib, the wife of Musa who occupied space, she ran a business within a male sphere, She was the first to approach Musa about marriage. We hear of Khadija, an amazing entrepreneur, who approached a man 15 years her junior about marriage. We know that she was no less desirable for being a widow or for being a single mother. These women are what made me fall in love with Islam and showed me a God who valued women equally to men, who didn't shy away from telling their stories. I went on to call my daughter, Marian, after one of the strongest women in Islam. And I pray that these stories, she goes up with (laughs) them and knows that she can be a giant and never doubts her ability. When religion is expressed and viewed through an already ascribed social order in society, there is no surprises when it becomes absorbed in it. Unfortunately, our community exists at an intersection between Western and Eastern patriarchies. And Muslim women bear the brunt of these toxic male environments. Recently, I was asked to show non-Muslims around a mosque in Glasgow as part of their doors open day. I was told that as a new Muslim, I was more relatable to white people. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I can put aside the fact that I've classed myself as Muslim for eight years and I can stop asking the question of when I'm just going to become Muslim instead of a new Muslim. But I cannot ethically ignore the fact that on a regular day, I cannot walk into that mosque Because of the genitalia that I possess. I'm always appalled to find mosques who refuse to allow access to women. I'm always furious when I'm told it's better for me to pray at home. I'm sick of pretending to try clothes on in shops so that I can pray because I can't access my local mosque, and I don't class patriarchy as a valid excuse for missing a prayer. I'm fed up of unsupervised children being dumped into women's areas by men who don't want to disturb the brothers but couldn't give a damn about what the sisters are doing. I'm sick of women's classes running throughout the day because women don't have jobs. And when they do run, they're about marriage, or how to get married, or how to be a good wife, or how to be a good mum, or how to have a baby. Because <laughs> that's what women care about. AMINA is such a vital organisation because It works to empower Muslim women based on what you want, what Muslim women want, not based on some yuppie, white saviour, coloniser viewpoint of what a Muslim woman needs, wants, should have. They are completely blind to the fact that their post-colonial obsession with the exoticism exoticism of Muslim women and how they dress is less about freeing us and more about presenting their Western liberal values. Britain and other colonies, when they colonised swathes of the Muslim world, they were looking, as they still do, for ways to justify their behaviour, using feminism, as they called it, as a colonial tool. Lord Cromer, the governor of Egypt in the early 19th century, espoused the liberation of Muslim women from the hijab as a way of welcoming them to the liberated Western world. In reality, Cromer was the leader of a Men Against Suffrage, Christ women out of Egyptian universities, and threw them out of medical schools because science was the realm of men. His aim was to erase culture, eradicate a religion he did not adhere to, and assert his white dominance. That sounds familiar, because really it's what we're constantly criticised for as Muslims. How often does the news tell us that we refuse to integrate? That we are not welcome because we refuse to submit to the whitewashing of our cultures and our histories. It is our time as Muslims to write the feminism that works for us, not for those who seek to oppress us. Thank.
1: You. That was really inspirational, and um, it's great to have a Mariam Sarah's daughter in the audience as well. And um, I just. In terms of what you were saying, she's got a fantastic role model Sarah, uh, and, and it's brilliant, actually, when you were talking about the stories, and you touched upon that as well. Um, I think quite often we forget about the brilliant woman in our faith, mm-hmm. and actually reviving those stories and telling them to not just our girls, but our boys as well. Mm-hmm. Our next speaker is Dr Saira Dar, she is a GP, a Hijama therapist and NLP instructor. Saira is an integrative health practitioner. Saira has been working actively within the Muslim community for over 15 years. Um, she was a previous coordinator for Islam Awareness Week Scotland and is an active member of Islamic Society of Britain. Saira is currently completing her syllabus advanced course after five years of intensive study on the Islamic sciences. So thank you and I look forward to our you. here. Assalamu alaikum. Can you hear me? Good evening.
6: And thank you to Amina for inviting me to speak today because I really am quite honoured to be able to stand here and speak to you about this subject, Islam, feminism, women's rights. It's something that every woman knows and has a feeling about. Even if they can't articulate it, they know what that means. Because every woman has felt some level of oppression or sexism in their life, and to stand here and s- speak my opinions and what I think, it's quite an honour to, to do that. And thank you to Sarah and others for taking away my speech and saying everything I wanted to say. <laughs> okay, I've got, I've got the um, I think a good place to start would be my own personal journey. I think that's always a good place to start. And as a so to take you back, as a young Muslim professional woman, I just qualified as a as a doctor. And as a in my professional capacity I knew exactly what my role was. I knew what my relationship was with my patients, I had guidance, I knew the boundaries, I, I that was that that was fine. But in every other role in my life I wasn't quite sure where I fitted in. As a as a new wife, as a daughter, as a daughter-in-law, I wasn't really sure what where's my place in society. And things like, you know, where, where's the boundary, where can, when can I stand up to a husband, when can I stand up to our peers, when can I say no to these cultural stereotypes, these were all questions I had, and even though now I'm saying to you I was searching and looking for myself, I didn't know that at the time, but I know that now that's what I was doing, and the problem was that there was something missing and that was God, um, and when I realised that I had to put the creator in the middle of all that equation, around the chaos that was my life, things started to make sense to me. And that's because through learning about Islam, I learned about these universal principles, these arteries that run through the foundation of Islam. And those are the universal truths, that's why I call them, of justice, equality, equity, freedom, um, celebrating our differences. And these are all things that I only learned when I turned towards God and wanted to learn more about our religion. And to quote Zen Aga and look her up, she was a really vibrant young woman, Islam made me a feminist. This is how this happened. So let's look back in history. In every land, in every society, there's been misogyny, there's been patri- a patriarchal system, women have been uh, uh, oppressed. And that was the same in 7th century uh, Arab community when Islam came to be. So Islam came to a land where fem- female babies were buried alive. That was the status of women in that time. Yet Islam put paradise at a mother's feet. It was the way a father could entrance enter paradise through his daughters. The wife was the way a, a husband could complete his religion by being good to his wife. In a land, in a country, in a society where females were confined to the homes, when Islam came about, women were not allowed. The men were not allowed to say no and stop the women from going to the mosque. In a land where, in a, in a society where women were confined to their homes, we put a Khadija, Khadija in the highest rank. We give her such respect because she was the epitome of an independent, strong woman. She was wealthy, she was a businesswoman. And this is in a society where there was misogyny. There was misogyny there. She fought to be who she was. Islam came to a land where females were not educated. Yet Hazar Aisha was is known to be one of the first scholars, one of the first jurists in Islam. And she was the start of a whole legacy. Of, I mean, Islam flourished with female scholars after that. Um, I, I'll give you a couple of examples. Aisha bin Saad was one of the teachers of Imam Malik. And uh, he is one of the founders of one of the main Islamic uh, uh, schools sort of thought. Said Nafisa was one of the teachers of Imam Shafi again one of the founders of the Islamic school. Um Nusaiba, she was a female warrior, again in a land where women were confined to their homes. This Muslim woman was a warrior. She saved the life of Prophet by putting her life in front of his Fatima al-Firi, a wealthy woman, very educated, founded what is uh, known to be the first uh, the oldest university that still exists today. So, I mean, again, touching on what you were saying, we need to celebrate these women. Learning about these women is what made me proud. It filled my heart to be a Muslim woman. And this is the legacy that we have to reclaim. These are the Muslim women that we should strive to be like. And they were feminists. They were feminists because they were, they were brought up in a misogynistic society, yet they fought for their rights and they fought to be who they are, who they became. This is how Islam made me, a feminist. I would go as far as to say that Islam pre-empted the feminist movement. And I say that because the struggle for equality is an age-old struggle. Every society, every land. And when Islam came, it came to a society where slavery was rife, female po- babies were being buried. And it started that change, a societal change. But it, couldn't, it didn't do it overnight because that's, we don't work that way. There had to be a time of gestation where things uh, were introduced and again I go back to those concepts of universal truths of freedom, justice, equality, equity, celebrating differences and it introduced a framework or blueprint for all times to look back to so we can reclaim what is rightly ours and it's the same framework that was used in 7th century Arabia, it's the same framework that we can use today and we should be using today. So. Quran, the Quran, the sacred texts, enshrined the rights of women, they're not something that um, feminism is not new, so Islam pre-empted the need for this by making these rights enshrined in our sacred law, and again they've been touched on the voting rights. Um, the Pledge of Aqaba, where a group of uh, a group of men and women from Medina voted to have the Prophet of as a leader. And by the way, did you know that Switzerland just gave women the voting right in 1971? Just is, like, not that long ago. Uh, property rights, inheritance rights, witness rights. I'll, actually, let, let's talk a little bit about witness rights because they're often misunderstood. You know, the whole concept of one man equals two women because of the fact that you really know, need two women witnesses to one man. I'll give you a couple of examples where that's not true. One example would be, if a man was to accuse his wife of adultery. Her, it's her word against his. His witness against her witness. It's the same it equals out. His voice is not stronger than hers. Another example of this would be our Hadith narration. The Hadith that we have, the wealth of knowledge that we have, would not have come to us if it wasn't for the female narrators that passed on that information. And their standing, with Hadith narration, is equal to that of a man. The female voice, again, enshrined in sacred texts. And I'll give you an example of that. Let's talk about Um Salama. Um Salama was one of the wives of the Prophet. and she, to me, epitomizes feminism. First of all, when he proposed to her, she said to him, I have three conditions. Now, this was the leader of the Muslim community, and at this point, he was powerful because they were in Medina. He was, you know, there was a majority Muslim there, so he had power and. He came and proposed to this widow, and, she's, and she was a single mum, and she said, I oh, have three conditions. I don't want to marry you unless you can do these three things. He answered to her pleasure and to were married. So that itself, do you mean, you know, it was a case all oh, right, this guy wants to marry me, I'm a single mum, I'm a widow, I better snap it up, so she had three, three conditions before she said yes. She was a very important counsel to the Prophet He would often turn to her for advice, and he would take that on. And there are many hadith narrations to, 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 to support this. She also went to the Prophet and said, Why are men mentioned in the Quran and not females? This is something that I came across, and I you know, very much knew what we said when you read the Quran and it came from a very masculine language. She said to the Prophet, Why are men mentioned and not females? She was one of the first Muslim female feminists advocating for female rights. And she wasn't afraid to criticise and ask. And Allah responded to that. And through that response, the Quranic verse that that established the uh, equality of the sexes, it, it, it showed that women and female had equal capacity for moral agency. They were equal in choice and individuality. They were equal in responsibility to each other and to the community. And they were equal in terms of religious obligations. So they were equal in the eyes of God. I think this is quite an important story for me because there's quite a few lessons that we can take from it. Number one, Prophet was not afraid to take criticism. He was not afraid for a woman to come to him and say, "Hang on, I, this this is not right. Why is this? That's the kind of name we should be bringing up in our society." And if someone, whether it's your husband or your father, you don't agree with them, or a leader in the community, ask. Don't be afraid. It also establishes the female voice. This is something that's quite a contemporary discussion we have. Where's the female voice? We have it in our sacred text, the female voice. And there are many, many occasions like this where females took to account the, the companions, the Khalifas the, uh, of the time, whether that was the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu whether that was Hazrat Omar. Hazrat Aisha is renowned for correcting uh, the companions when they were wrong. And thirdly, and really important, I think, it tells us how w- we should be acting as women. Don't be afraid to stand up for yourself. Don't be afraid to question and say, hang on, this is not right. Because if no one else is going to stand up for you, you're on your own. It's us. And we have to have the courage to ask questions and question when we feel injustice has been done. And this is how Islam champions these women and their voices. And this is how Islam is feminist. However, in reality... We know that women are being oppressed, Muslim women are being oppressed, domestic abuse is rife FGM, all these things that we've talked about. And having worked in the Muslim community for a number of years, especially in public Shields, I understand these are problems that we need to talk about. And unfortunately, we do need the men on our side to make those changes. But that's not going to happen unless we stand up for ourselves, which is why we need Islamic feminism. And I do qualify that feminism as Islamic feminism because... Islam doesn't need feminism as an outside source. We have it inherent in our religion. The problem is the people and power and the need for power. And sometimes it's a female that they oppressors because it serves a purpose. So this status quo is perpetrated by how, what, what why is it By misconceptions of our religion. And the fact that culture I know you were saying that culture and religion are diverge, another way of looking at it is that they're so intermingled that it's hard to separate culture from religion. But also there are ideas that we've incorporated in our traditions that come from other religions, such as what Sarah touched on from the Krishna religion about the, the fall of Adam and Eve and how that came about. She was a temptress, she led Adam astray, and now we have to suffer the consequences. So as mothers, the, the pain of birth is as a punishment for what you did. So these attitudes have seeped into our traditions as well. And there are things like, you know, the misconceptions of um the the two two females equal one male, or the, I, the, there's a hadith that tells us that the a hazard eve was made from the rib of Hazar Adam and Islam. There's the wife beating verse from Surah An-Sah. and nisa I call it the wife beating it's, you know, it's not it doesn't advocate wife beating, but that's what it's called, so that's why I'm just i uh, I'm calling it because everyone knows which what that is. So let's just discuss why that happens. I think, first of all, when we are given or, you know, shown these sort of texts, we need to stop being suspicious of them. Because we are looking at these texts through our worldview, and our worldview is obviously tainted by sexism and misogyny. So when we are given sacred texts, let's not be suspicious about it. Because there's wisdom, and there's uh, once we understand... There's much more to it than uh, what we can initially understand. Also, tafsir history—the history of tafsir—every scholar will have looked at Quran and Quranic texts through their own perception. They will have been; their perception will be coloured by their environment, the country they live in, the society they live in. And it doesn't mean that the, we can just go away and start reading the Quran and you know, making our own tafsir. It doesn't mean that because there is. Such a thing as the universal language of the Quran, and some things are. And the universal language of Quran means that, regardless of time, regardless of country or society, those truths are still firm, and the the, the foundations of Islam. However, it's a good it is to understand that every scholar will have done the decisions through their own perceptions. And it goes back. I go back to what I was saying about the themes of Quran. Uh, the themes of justice and equity and equality and freedom. And looking at the Quranic text through something called the Harmony Principle, which uh, as al-Hibri talks about when she is discussing the domestic abuse verse, often we look at it again through suspicious eyes and try to dissect it. But if we understand the Quran through the eyes of the Sunnah and the way that the Prophet led his life, that gives us a much deeper understanding of, of the sacred texts. Now, one of the things that was mentioned initially was 40%, did you say, of women say that it's not 40% of feminism has gone too far. I think it is important to understand why, where that comes from, and why even some Islamic groups, scholars, will not entertain you if you start talking about feminism and women's rights. And they have a dislike for this sort of terminology. One of the main reasons, again, Sarah touched on, is the whole idea of women's liberation being used as a tool for colonisation. And it's still happening. This is not just something that happened. Look, Afghanistan. Okay? It's used as justification for wars. We need to liberate these women, women. And Leila Ahmed talks about it in quite a lot of detail in her book, Women and Gender in Islam. And I'll give an example of this. In the 19th century, the the British colonial powers uh, tried to justify why they were attacking Egyptian culture, uh, because women were oppressed, the hijab was oppressing them, we need to get rid of the segregation, we need to get rid of the hijab. And they tried to discredit and dismiss the indigenous culture that was there. So obviously there's a, a backlash to that, people reacted to that. They fixated on the segregation aspect, they fixated on the hijab aspect. They wanted to liberate the Muslim women. And as they were about Lord Comer, all he did was replace the eastern patri- patriarchal system with a very western uh, misogynistic system. He stopped female medics, for women in Egypt that were allowed to uh, go on to you know, quite high levels of education, he stopped the female medics from practising allowed them to practise in the divifery only, because again, science was the wrong of men. So this is known as the Western construct of feminism, and I think this is one of the reasons why some people do get quite uncomfortable when we're talking about feminism. And I think it's good to understand where that comes from. And even some of the contemporary female scholars that we would think of as feminists don't like to be called feminists because of some of these ideas. Then there's radical feminism, and again it's important to understand that there's so many different kinds of feminism. And we, when we talk about feminism, we mean women's liberation. But for some people, it means a lot more than that. And there are some feminists in the past that have attacked the family unit, which obviously in Islam is crucial. It is the foundation of Islam. However, I agree with someone called Margaret Badron who said that no society or group owns a definition of feminism and that people that oppose the, the, the coming together or oppose the... the disagree that feminism and Islam can be um can, can work together, which just due to their ignorance in Islam or an ignorance in ignorance in feminism. And anybody that talks about female is a feminist and I actually quite agree with that. However, I will say that misogyny and patriarchy looks very different where you are and it's different for everybody, so we do need to define it for ourselves. So we've got things like the Me Too campaign, the Times Up campaign, that might not be relevant to us in the Muslim community as as much as it is, for example, women in Hollywood, uh, women in certain areas of business, and that might be yourself, but it might not be what you really want to fight against. Your women liberation might be something else. It might be standing up to the mosques for better facilities and being, you know, representation on the board. Everyone's feminism will be different, and I think that's fine. And the whole idea of Islam and feminism is that Islam allowed women to be what they want, who they want. It didn't restrict us. So here, in, our, in the Western culture, I think, as Muslim women, we have a double whammy in terms of uh, oppression because we have our own cultural baggage and we also have the kind of misogyny and women's oppression that comes with the media, the TV, the advertisements that we see, the lack of opportunities, especially if you wear a hijab, it gets even harder when you're trying to apply for jobs. But Islam has allowed women the freedom to be who and what they want and to define themselves and their roles in their families and societies while acknowledging that they are different and there are differences between men and women. And Islam celebrates these differences and gives us general rules to, in which we can build a just and equitable and harmonious society. And at the centre of the society is the family unit, and at the centre of that family unit is the mother. And this brings me back to cel- you know, celebrating motherhood and celebrating uh, womanhood. For me, you can't have feminism without doing just that. A woman, the, the resilience that women have, the strength that women have, the softness that women have, the sensitivities that women have. We need to celebrate that and own that. So, to me, that is what feminism is, and it's giving back the importance to to also the role of motherhood in our society, which I sometimes think we overlook as women and as a society. We are fighting for equal opportunities and respect for our voice and our values, and not at the detriment of the family unit, and not at the detriment and degradation of womanhood. Islam gave us a freedom to be leaders, professionals, scholars, but without the burden on the female in the way that sometimes secular feminism does, where you go out to work, you also do the household and the kids and everything else, Islam allows you not to have that burden. And I think, to me, feminism is about equal opportunities. I have the opportunity to do whatever I want, but I don't have to. There's no burden on me. It's a freedom to work freedom not to work. Which is why I qualify my feminism as Islamic feminism, and this is how Islam
0: Islamic my feminist.
1: <laughs> um, thank you so much, Saira. It's really interesting what you're saying about feminism, in terms of what it means to different people, and from the Islamic perspective as well. Um, it's something that probably riled me a while ago, when there was a uh, I think was it two years ago around the Burkini ban in France in particular. And I remember writing a blog about it because I was outraged, um, particularly after seeing a photograph. And I remember thinking, right, we're all, well, or, you know, sisters kind of going to make a comment. Where, where, where's everybody else that's enraged just like me about this? And there was silence. And I remember kind of speaking to people saying, why is this just for Muslim women to speak up about? You know, in terms of feminism, why is it? Why is it so? When we think about it, it, it almost feels very binary. So it's really interesting what you were saying around that. But also, I didn't know um all uh, around the women teachers, the founders, um of the different schools of thought. So I don't know that. So that was really interesting to hear that as well. And we need to hear a lot more of that. It's very empowering. So thank you. Um. Last but not least is Malia, and Malia graduated from Birmingham University where she read cultural studies with French. Followed by an info in post-colonial theory. While studying for her info, she became active in the National Union of Students. In twenty sixteen, Malia became the first female British black Muslim leader of the NUS. She is a social activist and campaigner against racism and oppression, and is a permanent host on the Women Like Us programme on British Muslim TV. So we have a celebrity.
7: Assalamualaikum.
0: Yes.
7: Yeah. Oh, um, I don't even know how to follow after all those speakers, um, when I was told I was last, I was like, damn it, I'm going to have no material for anyone, <laughs> uh, but handle that was an incredible set of speeches, um, and what a beautiful venue. Um, I'm really inspired to go back to Birmingham and say, like, where's our centre at? This is a this is really incredible space uh, and I'm very honoured to be here with you and I want to thank the organisers, most of whom are volunteers, uh, which is powerful. Uh, they do this alongside our, uh, alongside very, very, I'm sure, hectic lives, studies and work um, and so they should definitely be applauded. Um, so I was asked to reflect on my own story. Um, I should really hate Talking about my personal story, uh, particular after the year uh, that I've had, uh, which is uh, an incredibly, I guess, public experience of institutional racism. Um, after ninety-four years of a union existing, uh, you know, a openly Muslim, socialist, uh, anti-colonialist, anti-racist free education supporting, counter-terrorism policies critiquing, woman of colour rocks up and says, right, we're going to change the way you've been doing things because it's been helping no one. Um, and that, you know, that led to a lot of attacks from every section of society, uh, from government reports to vice chancellors denouncing me to members of parliament, former NUS presidents suddenly getting the limelight on, uh, you know, um, on, on every news channel imaginable. Um, and, uh, and I think that the the cherry on top uh, was uh, having the Al Jazeera lobby documentary uh, depicting how the Israeli embassy was involved in my oppression and in my destruction. Uh, so that was particularly frightening. I think um, not just on a personal level, but I think for the the Muslim community as a whole, not just in the UK, because this became you know an international story. I'd like be walking on the streets of Morocco and I, you know I'd be going to visit uh, the first uh, degree awarding university and then somebody will spot me and say you're not the NUS president and it still happens to this day literally I'd be in Belgium and a diplomat at a conference will say hey well, you not all over the news and whilst on the one hand it could be uh, empowering and it's like wow you know my story reached this this uh, level uh, it's also incredibly scary. Um, that I became the representation of something so unbearable to the establishment that it had to be destroyed at every cost and, and it took establishments around the world, uh, to do so. Um, so I can talk about, you know, my personal experiences throughout the Q&A if people have, have them or come to me at the end. Um, but I, I just remember throughout, people said, you know, how is it that you, you just kept going and you finished your term? How is it possible? Uh, and I remembered uh, the civil rights activist, Andrea Davis's words, uh, when the most powerful state of the world came after her. And she said that, I made the 10 most wanted criminalists and I was represented as armed and dangerous. And you know, one thing that I remember thinking to myself was, what is all this about? What could I possibly do? And then I realised that it wasn't about me at all. It wasn't about the individual at all. It was about sending a message to large numbers of people whom they thought they could discourage from involvement in the freedom struggles at the time. Um, And whilst I absolutely did not go through a fraction of what Angela Davis went through, um, it was just, that was what I kept in mind was actually this is the symptom of a wider problem. This is the, the violence reserved for Muslims, for people of colour, for political activists, for the left in this country. Um, and we are the catch of the day, Muslims are the catch of the day through the policies. Uh, but, but this is a structural question and it's not about Malia Boatia, it's actually about what I represented uh, and the political ideologies that I held uh, that sought to rebuild, rebuild the world anew. They said that actually everything that exists right now um, continues to reinforce hierarchies throughout society, throughout institutions, from education to healthcare. Uh, the color of your passport, um, you know, defines whether you have a right to freedom and dignity on this earth, and all those questions. Um, and and I think also the reality is my story is known. It had a national and even international platform, uh, but there are countless Muslim women out there whose suffering and experiences of violence, particularly structural violence, are completely unknown, um, some of whom have been destroyed in the process. Um, And I think that's why I'd like to just take the time to speak about um, the current state for those women, for the Muslim women in the UK. Um, And perhaps during the discussion, we can unpick terminology and so on. so, everywhere we look today, the Muslim women has been objectified, instrumentalized, and dehumanized from the orientalist gaze to the white savior complex. We are simultaneously hypervisible and completely invisible. For every national debate about the niqab or the hijab, there is a lack of willingness to involve Muslim women's voices and opinions as diverse as they are. And yet, there is an over-representation in the attacks that we face. Muslim women who dress visibly different are open targets to the far right and Islamophobes across the spectrum, institutionally as well as on our streets. I want to reference a study that was carried out by an academic who spent one month wearing the niqab outside on a daily basis. Uh, She kept her diary and every single day without fail she was attacked, called names like terrorist or traitor, uh, faced sexually explicit slurs and by the end was living in fear that she would face a physical attack. The academic says that she still feels the emotional trauma today. Now imagine that in your everyday reality, but heightened. Because as the state continues, uh, it's racist prevent agenda, it sows division and pits community against community. Because when Muslim newsreaders in headscarves are labeled unfit to report some news stories, it tells us that they don't belong in those spaces. And because when the EU rules, that some employers can demand Muslim women to neutralise their clothing of religious symbols. It's an attempt to make us assimilate and conform. The UK government's own Women and Equalities Committee ranked Muslim women as one of the most deprived demographics. And it's no wonder given the triple discrimination complex of being woman, racialised and Muslim. In the case, your review again highlighted uh, integration and English language skills um, and we've seen these weaponized time and time again. When the previous prime minister, uh, David Cameron, decided <laughs> uh, decided to cut funding uh, for ESOL classes, he wasn't thinking about the Muslim women who would suffer. And when he eventually ring-fenced thousands of pounds for ESOL, again, it wasn't for the sake of Muslim women succeeding, it was a misguided attempt to instrumentalize them in curbing extremism in Muslim families. Stuck between being visible targets of some phobic attacks and subject to draconian government policies and a civil society and media that views the representation of Muslim women as something suspect, it can seem as though there is very little for Muslim women to do but to fold under immense pressure. I'm glad to say that absolutely isn't the case, not just judging from the panel today, um, but across institutions from, you know, Muslim women, uh, hijabis at, in a university in Belgium that took their university to court over a ban uh, to those here uh, across the UK. gender Islamophobia is but one battle that Muslim women are fighting and fighting well. Muslim women are being elected as leaders across every sector. They're becoming journalists, they're researching and becoming experts in dismantling discrimination. We are claiming our narrative and we will continue to but we have to be clear that it absolutely isn't about filling a seat, we are not. We don't want representation for representation's sake. Whilst it's a considerable privilege to be in a position of power, uh, it's much more about the responsibility that we hold to dismantle the oppressive structures that mean we even have to champion Muslim women uh, and why feminism or women's liberation spaces are a necessity to begin with. And to me, it requires that we don't remain silent that we unite our struggles and reject any exclusivity or elitism in whose dignity, freedom and equality that we support. It requires that we fight with all that we have for our sisters being deported and imprisoned in detention centres, to stand up against any woman having to live under a colonial occupation like that in Palestine. Our spaces should stand firm in demanding justice and an end to our sisters being suffocated or beaten to death by the state because of the color of her skin. For our sisters who are denied basic uh, healthcare by a racist, transphobic system, we must take on our government uh, on their obsession with investing thousands and thousands of pounds and power and energy on demonizing a whole community through the prevent agenda, whilst two women are dying a week from abuse and one in four women are raped. I apologize that the Scottish statistics are different. Are they That's right? Great. So. <laughs> uh, we must challenge the, I mean, not great. I would rather they were better. Uh, we must challenge the treatment of Muslim women having their hijabs ripped off their heads, having spy cameras in their prayer rooms at college and university, not to mention the mental, strain uh, that the most powerful country in the world has quite literally enforced a ban upon us, despite the fact that one in seven women experience sexual harassment and violence at university. We have to take on the normalizing of casual, casual sexism thrown at women from the classroom to our streets, and we must challenge, disrupt, and rupture a cycle of violence and destruction on women everywhere, all around the world. We cannot be selective in what we fight for. Islamophobia, misogyny, climate justice, racism, xenophobia, fascism, homophobia, transphobia, colorism, austerity, and so much more, are all feminist issues. It's not about maintaining a seat of power, it's about sharing that seat with all all those in need of it, in need of change for the sake of life and freedom. And whilst the reality for many of us is incredibly difficult, events like this today are so, so important, carrying out much needed discussions in order for us to organise and to fight back. Um, and I'll just finally give you the words of Aranda Tiroi. Um, Another world is not only possible, she is on her way. Thank you all for listening. <clears throat> uh, thank you so
1: much, Malia. Um, Oh, I was completely, when we were talking about disrupting the system and organising, and I'm like, yay, <laughs> yeah, that's what we've got to do. So hopefully there'll be some ideas around how we can actually go about doing that. Um, but also you touched upon like, the triple penalty women face. This is something we've been doing in our employability work, and it was, I can't remember, the Dr. Mubil Khadal, his research, um, that highlighted, he uh, did some research around Muslim women and their white counterparts, and when they had the same language proficiency, um, same skills, qualifications, they were still, 71% times uh, they were more likely to be unemployed. So these are the things that we're constantly fighting and having conversations about, but also about the real impact of Islamophobia on lives. So one of the things that, you know, uh, I just want to quickly share is, I, I recall, um, our English classes are constantly oversubscribed, mm-hmm. and Ria here could tell you that who works on the Cloud Builders Project. And there was one time, um, so there had been an attack somewhere in Europe and we were really surprised that morning set up and I think about two women turned up and we were expecting about 12 women to turn up and so when we um phoned around and asked why are these women not turning up and they were talking about we've been told to not go out Mm -hmm. um because of the backlash and it's really very real for these women and everyday kind of experiences as well so when you were talking about that that just kind of came flooding back to me that the extra challenges that we have Thank you very much. Um, so, it's over to you now. We've got please. our panel, and we are a bit short of time. Like I said, we have got bits of paper. If you don't want to ask, feel free to pass the question on to someone up there mm. or myself or Gazala up there. But please, um, go ahead. So, put your hands up, and let's get the conversation going. Serena? Um. We've got a Roman mic as well.
0: My is to you, you, You mentioned something about feminism, and you said the good way of feminism, right? And by saying that you implied that there was a bad way of feminism. Yeah. You said there was a good way of feminism. You yeah. made a statement and you said that there was a good way of feminism, yeah. something that happened in the good way of feminism. So for me it was like, Well what is a bad way of feminism? Yeah, yeah could you just explain that please? Yeah so for me a
3: uh, so for me a bad way of feminism, a feminism that doesn't have intersectionality at its core it's the feminism that failed to support Semina when it was um standing against the Burkini ban. Right? So a feminism that is for middle class educated white women is not the purpose of feminism, is not it's not the way of feminism for me. Your feminism it has to be intersectional because it has to be able to look at all women and want to make the world a better place for all of them. You don't get to be selective about which woman it is you want to get to the point of equality. That's not good feminism for me. It's intersectional, it's inclusive, it's standing tall for Muslim women, no matter who that upsets or that challenges, including yourself. As a good feminist, you need to be comfortably being challenged by the women who you are failing to represent to make you a better feminist. So for me, it's intersectional or it's not good enough.
1: I wanted, I'm i from Kuwait, so I come from a different context where it's not very as secular as, as uh, environment as it is here. And so there's this current uh, discussion
0: happening uh, with this uh, trend of um, uh, women who are
6: taking off their hijab, or a perceived trend, I don't think it's an actual trend. Um, and there has been this huge discussion or public discourse uh, about uh, the fact that women are taking off their hijab. But my my issue with it is is that it seems to be always that the faith of Islam lies at what a woman does. Rather than what man, men do. And I wanted to,
7: to really, in all of your experiences, to see how, what, what would you respond to that? <laughs> no, um, I, I, I agree. But again, I, th- I think that many of us would say that that's, that's just patriarchy playing itself out. It's that very particular form of oppression, but within the internal space. Um, I think that that also has historically, when it comes to, um, people of the global south, been um, as a uh, been used as as a response to forms of colonialism and oppression, and I so I'm from Algeria, and when I go back, you know, I mean I, I maneuver b- between very different spaces. You know, I have the majority of my father's family are illiterate, very very poor working class families, uh, but then sections are like academics and students, and then and and it's weird because some of the women will talk to me about how. Um, there is a movement to hijab up and that there is peer pressure within lecture theatres and I was like damn this is so surreal like your problems are so flipped compared to the ones I've got people ripping them off and you you know you, you your 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 issues are like comparatively so different Um and but that that is a direct response to actually the war on terror like aside from the fact it doesn't um, remove the fact that it is a misogynistic response and it is deeply problematic that our society believes as long as we cover our women, we are like defending ourselves against the attacks on Islam. Um, but that requires that our efforts be twofold, that they are that we are not afraid to air dirty laundry, as some people accuse us of doing, by taking on the internal challenges around that and questioning why the obsession, why are you focusing on this? Um, whilst at the same time taking on the very real um, supposed war on terror and and what it is inflicting upon Muslim nations and how the violence um, is is doubly so on the women um, after this contact uh, with these policies and, and with these interventions um, and actually this relates somewhat to, I don't know if people saw the recent report that came out from was it the Muslim Council of Britain around mosques and that a third of UK mosques don't have women's services and I was like, okay, this is really interesting and it's important to talk about. But I was really, really alarmed by the, the binaries of the discussion where we had, you see, this is like, so so you had internally, like, th- this is a cultural problem. Like, I had, you know, uh, South Asian friends saying, oh, like... Asians hate their women so much. And then I had Arab friends saying, oh, Arabs are so misogynistic. And I had, you know, West African. Every community was claiming like misogyny worse than the other at that point and saying like, we have such a problem. These are my experiences. These are my experiences. And the experiences are important. But they started, the discussion started to reel out of the realms of structural oppression. And I said, like, I've been there, the struggle is real, Taraweeh during Amnan, away from my family, I want to find a mosque, I want to find a sanctuary, I want to be there, like, you know, feel that sense of, you know, and, and being told from mosque to mosque, not no women, no women, no women. Like, it is, it's a problem, and we'll take that on. But to remove the discussions on what governmental policies are doing to mosques, they're quite literally trying to decide what mosque spaces are, who gives sermons, what the subjects are going to be on, screenings, cameras, uh, uh you know, forcing mosques to even do like meet your armed forces day, like, and, and we've seen like the chairman of, uh, Birmingham Central Mosque spoke out against, against prevent and was elected as Lord Mayor, was forced out of that position, firstly. And secondly, almost had to like, it wasn't enough. That, like, his position was almost destroyed. He also had to be humiliated in the process by opening the mosque up to share a cup of tea with the armed forces. Like, that is the, you know, the perpetrators of, of like, global Islamophobia, if you will, were invited into what is supposed to be a sanctuary for the community. So, there is some real problematic institutional, governmental level things happening as far as our mosque goes. So, is it then any surprise? uh the, the, the thing at the very bottom of the agenda then becomes women women's liberation and with such a policy um being implemented and, and functioning in such a violent way within our mosque, what woman that is facing any persecution or oppression in society would ever want to go into a mosque? All she'll be thinking about is who's gonna give my name to the state? What am I gonna be accused of? Like, you know, who's who's spying on me? Who's working for the police? Who's this? Who's that? And and I think we have to, like I said, if we're going to air dirty laundry, we need to air it all out because that's the only way that we're going to start constructing a counter-narrative and actually organising against our oppression. It's a long way <laughs> <laughs> um, I,
6: Thank you for that because you see it from a different perspective with yeah. um, <laughs> the whole spying on mosques. And I think I've always been interested in women's spaces in mosques and that whole discussion is really quite close to my heart. Um, I was involved in a bit of a discussion recently on a WhatsApp group of lots of people, and someone put up some evidence, lots of quotes from the Quran, Hadith, to prove that women shouldn't need to stay at home. And it started off with saying that women are fitna, like, you know, they're just, oh, your men can't be near women because I just accept them too to that to that liking. And you read this, and it's infuriating, it gets you angry. And I really had to think about whether I should respond to that or not. And sometimes it's be- better not to. Uh, because people that are putting that out there, they're not really interested. So what I do is you continue doing whatever it is you're doing, whether that's trying to get better for spaces in mosque for women, within your own social circle, talking about women's liberation and looking back at Islam for your empowerment. Because it's all there. It's all there for us. And the whole idea that women are fit now should be kept at home to me is such a ridiculous idea to, in this day and age but like i said this whole this whole discussion is an age-old thing it's always going to be our place then it's always been it's you know it's something which will always be our struggle and men will always say this is the woman way a woman should dress and it's always focused on the women so it's up to us to try, try and change the narrative so we just keep, continue doing that within our social circle, and inshallah, whatever kind of community projects come by, whether that's your mosque, just just get involved, fight. If there's no women on the board, get in there. Why are there not any women? Why is my voice not represented in the mosque? Do you know, it's just at your local level, do what you can.
8: Right, I'd just like to thank you guys all. Um, I think, like, not a lot of men are here, but, well. And <laughs> a um, few of us, I hope, um, Will be supportive in your play. I have a not very so popular question, mm-hmm. and I'm gonna sit down because I feel awkward a <laughs> So, please don't take this the wrong way, but here's in uh, my own take, like what I see. I'm from North Africa, for instance. I'm from Tunisia, and so I think, uh, I, in my opinion, in my own social bubble, I think Muslim countries are are not super immune to the trend of secularization that is happening in the world or, and, you know, deculturization that is happening in the world where Islam or, you know, the, the culture there is probably that country is not super prevalent, prevalent anymore. So in that trend, how do you reach out to, for instance, women who might not read the Quran, for instance, every single day? Maybe they read it every month. Maybe they read it um, on Ait, you know? Or, you know, maybe their attachment to Islam is more cultural then you know spiritual, for instance. But yeah, they're still a member of the community. They're still a member of the society, and they still face, I think, the same, in you know, oppression or in the other uh women face in the in the in their communities as well. So how do you make the bridge between? Well, this is obviously you know we're talking about Islamic feminism here, as it comes from the the scripture, but. In as much, there are other women who may not adhere so much to the scripture per se, but, you know, they're still part of the community. And I say that because, I mean, if you think in 20 years' time or, you know, like 50 years' time, we might see that more and more people will be, you know, less in um, to their to their religion, you know, as, as we have it today, right? That's my question. Can I quickly
6: just share something that um, I, I work in an uh, area in Glasgow called Port Shields and it's a majority Asian majority Muslim uh, community and I'm a GP there so I come across a lot of issues um, of domestic abuse, rape within marriage um, no, access, no access to contraception or lack of knowledge of contraception and these sort of things and I, I feel a big response, sense of responsibility to these women mm-hmm. um, and it's not about religion me it's about basic human rights. Uh, so when I get someone that comes to me, I'm not going to start preaching and saying, oh the version of the Quran and this, it's about basic human rights. So the fact that you have right over your body
8: is first and foremost. Sorry, I wanted to clarify, I'm, I'm talking about more like women who still maybe perhaps identify as Muslim and they still live in Muslim communities. Um, but they're not so spiritual to a sense where if you cite, you know, a verse from the Quran that might speak so much to them, or they might have like a super knowledge of, you know, what did uh, Aisha or Khadija did, you know, the seventh century, you know. People I, are, I, like I, don't know these things anymore. Uh, yeah,
6: but I'm talking about those women. I'm talking about Muslim oh, women. Sorry. I'm talking about Muslim women. So, look, I I should, I'm talking about Muslim women that don't know the scripture that don't. You know, it's more of a culture. These are first-generation uh, immigrants from Pakistan. They don't speak English very well. So I'm talking about those sort of women. So, uh, so scripture is not going to work because for them, their culture is a religion. So for, the, for my my job then is to just t- teach them basic. Human rights. You can't. You know, this is this. You have a right over your body. You have a right to not get pregnant if you don't want to. You have a right to say no. It, to me, it's just it's basic human rights. And um, because. Feminism, feminism, women's rights are human rights. Human rights are something we are we we all need to be aware of. You know, these are you know your, your own body, not being a victim. Um another thing I I, I get is women that are being a, victims of domestic abuse, and they're. Being patient because that's what culturally they're just supposed to put up with, and in a lot of North African countries, subcontinent countries, you have this idea of, well, but that's what marriage is about. You just need to put up with it because that makes a feel, you know, that makes a foundation. It's it's challenging those thoughts on a one to one basis for me. Uh, on a wider scale, I'm not sure how that would be done, but for me, it's a it's a very personal one to one thing. Can I
3: just um... whilst I appreciate the premise of the question, I am going to state the fact that. I think it's interesting that the takeaway is how do you get more women to be um, engaged in scripture, but there's just as many men who are far away from that as there are women. Yes. And we, I that's, the original question was about women being far away from it. We're talking about people and people are further away from scripture and closer to culture. So I think it's just the second question makes more sense to me. So I'm going to answer to that. Um, and so I, I don't think women are especially further away, not at all. Um, I think as a community, we need to find our closeness to the religion again. And as people, as, as Muslims, we need to find our closeness to the religion. I don't think this is a women mm-hmm. problem as such. Um, but what I certainly would say is that it comes back to what both of us said about, and in fact, all of us said, which is the feminism already exists in Islam. And I think that story, I think the the leadership of women in Islam is a phenomenal way to and um, not just bring women into learning about scripture, but educating men on the value of
5: women through scripture. Just to touch as well on North Africa, most of what you're describing is a class issue. We're now moving in North Africa with a lot of emphasis on international skills and learning the IB program, which is French, or the British program, or the American program, and that removes a lot of the religious aspects that go with that. So while that is a problem that is a problem in a certain sphere of those countries not necessarily
4: i want to share a an experience i had not long ago about the me too movement it was a discussion between friends we talked about me too the involvement of women the reactions of men of society in general and then one of my uh, one of the people i was talking to mentioned The start of cases being revealed about women, Muslim women, being attacked or being touched while in Mecca. It's a very difficult topic to discuss. I'm a Muslim woman from West Africa, Senegal. At the same time, I wanted to talk about that openly. And I'm being very honest here. At the same time, I felt horrible because i want you to protect the little bits that is left of islam viewed in a positive way you mentioned all the issues all of you mentioned all the negative things that the world sees about islam and i just want to have your word what do you how would you help all of us raise that topic with confidence in the event that we face it what would be your response as different women of different cultures about that topic? One end, we want to be sure that we are not contributing to the negative view of Islam and of Mecca, which we should protect. And on the other end, like you said, women's rights are human rights. And you're absolutely right for saying that women's rights are inherited, it is something that we have within us, that we carry with us, not from modern texts but from like way mm-hmm. up to the time of the Prophet Muhammad. So it's like it's a very difficult question. How do we deal with wanting to protect what is left? Not what is left because it is already protected by God. We all know that. Mm-hmm. But how do we protect it? What kind of narrative we should have, not only to protect but also to say that women do not own own also their own privacy and their own setting in that kind of
3: Experience. Um, I mean, this is really, really difficult, and I and I I know what you're talking about. I read the article. It, it it requires to be said because at the end of the day, we are wanting to create a safe space. for women. women are entitled to that space. But I can also tell you, if I wrote an article about expressing my views about it tomorrow, the first newspaper that would call me would be the Daily Mail. Right? That's that is that is the reality of it. They would pounce on this. And they would talk about only this, not the bits where things are improving. They would not then have a, a relatable story about what's going on in a the church. They, they, they would pounce on this. Let's just be completely honest. Yeah. Right? Um, and there is that protective, defensive side of it. I don't know the answer. I'm going to be completely honest with you. I don't know the answer because this is such a complicated, institutionalised institutionalized racism that is that will wrap the conversation for me, I think it's really important that it is said that something is done about it, that women are able to express their experiences. And I think it's about us creating a space in our own communities for that to happen rather than it being through mainstream media, which is never going to be a critical, supportive friend. right? So creating a space in which our own communities are willing to have those conversations with authority, being genuine and creating a safe, signposted and supportive environment for the women who want to come forward. I think that is the way in which we can create something, create some kind of change. Um, and of course, men within the community need to be involved in that conversation and need to be be, to be aware of what, what being a perpetrator is as well. Um, but it needs to happen in an environment that is... Um, Both safe for the religion and safe for the
7: women. I just wanted to say that, like, uh, it takes kind of reflection. We can't by standing by silently and not accepting that there's a problem. um, We become hypocrites and we become complicit in that oppression. That's the reality. Like. I, for a long time, I, I found it difficult to maneuver, particularly within Muslim space. I'm like, I'm dealing with the fact that, like, my, like, university assignment society is both being attacked through, like, racial profile training of all staff members in the university. They want to introduce cameras, swipe system, all that business. But at the same time, They've got this, like, the shura. They decide upon who's going to become the president without a democratic election. They decide this. Women are being told, you're going to stand out in the rain and sell Krispy Kreme donuts during charity week whilst we go and do the real work. And then, like, they win the awards at the end of that. You know, I I saw members in the room know know what I'm talking about. We've been there. The struggle's real. And and it's difficult. But I realise the damage in not in not taking those things on. The reality is that we can do both. We can have spaces in which we can talk about the internal problems whilst taking on the external forces that attempt to exploit and in fact um, reinforce those problems. Um, I can, like, we can write an article where we say, time's up on mosques, Mecca, like, you name it. All those spaces time's up on whilst also saying, but I am absolutely not advocating a right-wing argument that reinforces that Muslims are innately violent and misogynistic and that this is just our problem. Um, and I think that's important. You have to contextualize it, but recognize we're at a time where our words will be manipulated and twisted. But as long as you your intentions are clear and you, you make your arguments clear, uh, that, like, that accountability, even just to your creator is there. Um, and I think the recent trip of the Saudi prince, let's be honest, was really, really one of the most disgusting displays that I'd ever seen. And I was in parliament that day where buses were welcoming him as a liberator of women. And I just thought, liberator, the Yemeni women can beg to differ. Like he's literally causing their death and destruction. Um And n- not to mention that like these women's rights are extended to the elite of Saudi. Uh Like, you know, the... Uh, East African women that are being brought in the shipload to to kind of to be exploited um are, are, are not going to be extended those those supposed uh rights and we have to take this on because ultimately even as Muslims we believe that we will meet our maker and we will be judged, and he won't ask us we won't be asked did you uh, liberate all these spaces. Did you root out every sec- form of sexual harassment and violence that ever existed in your society? But we will be asked, did we try? And and we have to, regardless of the consequences. Like I said, we are the catch of the day. No matter what we do, as we saw with the L'Oreal ad model, who never expected to be, you know, in the eye of a political storm. It doesn't matter who you are. Like no matter who you are in this day and age, as a Muslim. Like, if you, if you occupy a space, particularly a mainstream one, they will come after you in some way or another. But this is dunya and this is a test, right? So I'd rather do it, hold, staying true, uh, and, and being uncompromising in the principles of the foundations of my faith than sell people out and ultimately play into a system that is costing the lives of people all around the world, not just locally.
6: Can I just quickly add something to what you've wonderfully said? Uh, when, I think the Time's Up is a great platform to talk about that because sexual harassment is having is it's transcendent of race, religion, culture, society. So th- it, the Time's Up is a great platform to talk about this issue, whether it's in Makkah, whether it's in Egypt, in Pakistan, where women can't walk through the bazaars without being touched up. So it's, it, it doesn't matter what issue, it doesn't matter what religion you are, what country you live in sexual harassment is happening so the Time's Up is a great platform to, to talk about this thing, I think.
0: Uh, I've just got a wee quick fire round uh, if the panellists can maybe uh, suggest uh, a different vocabulary term uh, other than feminism uh, at the outset of the uh, talk uh, people were asked how member were feminists and that undoubtedly has Accommodation that you're grabbing, man hating, loose woman. Uh, and it does, it's a showstopper. So I can ask if the panelists can suggest uh, another term, possibly. N- no. And, <laughs> and, and, and
3: they're, they're, Because um, it's our word to define, um, and it, whether you call it Islamic feminism or uh, those are myths that have been construed by people who are misogynists that don't want you to use it in the first place, you stop using it, they've won the game. Yeah. So, no, I'm sorry. Feminist, proud. I
0: mean,
6: we claim the name. like I said in my speech there's reasons why people you know, are t- uncomfortable with it, but usually it's because they don't understand feminism properly. Um, and I think once they do then that we can leave you with it. So really we
7: need to educate people on what real feminism is. Um I'd say that as long as the work is being done I don't really care what people want to call it, uh, and as long as we don't start Obsessing with the definition to the point where we start, um, we start almost like uh, attacking um, groups and individuals that we should be building coalitions for. Like the name in and of itself has historical weight, and there's reasons why women have at times even paid with their lives to claim it. And so it's important that historical root is important. But like you can organize under whatever name you want to. Um, and like I come from the history of trade union movements, where it tends to be the women's group or the women's liberation uh, movement, and so on. But it, it, as long as the work is being done, and that we uh, don't start attacking each other and ripping each other to threads uh, uh, to shreds over definition I think I feel I that's for everyone okay to
1: define what that means for, for themselves? themselves. Yeah. yeah. Okay, okay?
0: Thank um, I think the panel's already touched on some of the, the issues I was going to raise, uh, but I think um, it's just important to <sighs> <can't see> it. <laughs> um, its important to just um, balance out that I think that what we're all looking for is real change and I, I wanted to know what the panel's view is on the fact that our battle is both internal and external and we have to be brave enough to stand up and fight against um, you know, institutional racism, Islamophobia, draconian government policies but unless we are able to look at our own communities and the places that we live and for for instance for ourselves ask the question why in this day and age in Glasgow is there not one woman on any mosque committee why are we not allowed into three quarters of the mosques um, why are we um, in our own homes kind of taught the anti-lessons of Islamic feminism by being told this is how you talk this is where you talk this is haya it means that you don't do this you don't do that Uh, this is what a daughter in law does this is what a wife does and you are basically I mean many people will, will whether they're brave enough to say it or not many are is that that the discrimination that happens in homes even when a successful policewoman lawyer doctor goes into another household and is suddenly made into a non-person because she is a Mm daughter-in-law it's the very anti of liberation justice and islamic feminism and i think that unless we balance and look at all of these issues we will be able to be empowered and inspired by muslim women and great figures from history but we won't be able to change some of the fundamental nuts and bolts that will bring about feminism and, and, and increased awareness in our time and in our space thank you for your question. um it's, it goes
3: a little bit to what was said about the me too campaign and, and, and what both malia and i were saying which is um actually the two things are not Disconnected from one another, what goes on inside the home is a representation of institutionalized racism and misogyny that is everywhere. so when you make a change in the home, it does have an impact elsewhere, but when you make a change elsewhere, it has an impact upon more homes so it's not you can't separate out the two Um, what I would say is that it's not all one of the, one of the things I would say is that it's not hundred percent on women 's shoulders mm-hmm. this is that would be an exhausting, exhausting fight to Dismantle all of this and take it on in your home. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, and I can be completely candid with the audience. I do feminism 24/7, and there's some battles that I don't have the energy to fight when I get home, right? So I take it on and I do it. And in the back of my head, I'm going, I am playing a role in my oppression, and this isn't okay. But I really need to go to sleep tonight. Mm-hmm. Like, there's, sometimes you've just you've you've got to give yourself a break, right? So you can't take it all on, which is why we need to have more women and men. Who are Muslims engaged in this discussion and being a bit more honest about their engagement and their own, you know, their, their own times that they've been perpetrators to sexism, institutionalized misogyny. But the two are not unlinked. So they're absolutely so closely linked that we, that we, we owe it to ourselves to fight the oppression within the home, but um, stand up tall against institutionalized inequality and institutionalized racism and misogyny within government policy rape clause, universal credit, austerity. I mean,
5: I could give you a list. Well, as Samina said, one of my passions is dismantling white privilege. So I'm very used to calling my own people out. Um, I think it's very important to have a knowledge of the fact that you don't need to do everything. You can give power to other people. You can, as Ami does, signpost to other people. You don't need to do everything. And it's not about that.
6: I I touched on this a little bit in the talk about family and the role of mothers. Um, My son is here in the audience today because he wanted to be here. Um, It was a bit of a shock to me, but I I think that's a little bit to do with how he sees his mum and the role I'm playing in being his role model. So I think it very much starts with you at home and the role model that you are with your kids. Because the, it's the boys that are going to make the change. Yes, we need to empower our girls, that goes without saying, but the, the, the boys that you're bringing up need to be supporting their wives and their sisters and their, you know, to be making those changes and to change their way of thinking because tomorrow they'll be the husbands and they'll have a wife and they'll be bringing it, you know, you know what I mean? So bring up the next generation the way you
7: want this generation to be. Thank you. I'll, I'll try to be quick, I promise. Um, I think that, yeah, you don't have to do everything, but don't undermine other movements because the reality is that, like, it's that whole, you know, they came for them and I said nothing and then they come for me. And, and th- this is the political context in which we're in. And I think it's, it's important to work on the individual. Our faith kind of guides us to... Um, but also we have to remember that the oppressions that we are facing are very much structural and that means taking on the institutions that perpetuate that violence. We, hold, we must hold them to account. We must dismantle those structures and we must organize and build coalitions that go beyond the Muslim community. And I think a really good demonstration of that was Muslims for Dream. If people paid attention to that story in the States where we saw, you know, uh, um, Omar, you know, Imam Omar Suleiman and... All the others, Linda um, Sosua, Linda, Linda Linda although not an Islamic scholar, but, you know, at, at this rate, um, mashallah. but, you know, and, and they were, and they kind of built a coalition in solidarity with migrants to, to kind of fight effectively the upcoming deportation of potentially 800,000 people in the States that were brought in to uh, America's children. And they occupied the corridors of uh, uh, the, spe- the equivalent of the Speaker of the House, and were arrested. Imams were in handcuffs. Can you imagine that in the UK? No, people were like, this can't be happening. they were spreading the picture saying, who photoshopped this? Because we're in such shock because our institutions here are on their knees to the state because they've been forced to be. I'm not saying that it it, it is out of choice. It's because they're being told that unless you bow down, you will not exist. And so they're having to make compromises thinking, better we have a mosque than nothing, right? But for some of us, we'd rather have nothing and take them on. But that's an internal argument. That means young people, activists, have to take on the leaders within our spaces. And we have to start telling what often in women like us we refer to as the old uncles. Like, they're like, we can't wait for them to die out. God forbid. But, you know, we, we just can't. We have to take it on. For a long time, we were silent, just like when our grandparents and our parents say problematic things. we just... They're old, they're old, they're old. But how long is that going to carry on? How much of that is being internalized by younger generations? How much of that are we going to perpetuate when we're older? We can't do this anymore because we will be held accountable for that silence and we can't afford to be. Um, and so I just say, coalitions do not undermine the move. Do not stop picking and sitting in your comfortable sofas thinking, oh, but maybe that activist shouldn't have done that. And maybe they shouldn't have done this. And that's a bit too extreme. That's a bit radical. We s- recently celebrated 100 years uh, you know, of of the uh, since the suffragettes movement, like they are today's terrorists, effectively in the sense, you know, that they, the things they got up to were absolutely illegal, um, and and yet now Parliament is celebrating them. And so, you, you if we are demonised in our struggle and in our organising, it means we're doing something right, uh, and we need to keep doing it. And we need to keep in mind that like those before us had the same experiences. And did so by any means necessary for a reason and we are here today literally off of the back of that struggle and we must absolutely carry on
1: thank you. so thank you very much to all our phenomenal panelists and um, and to all of you for coming
5: For more information and to listen to more podcasts, visit us at ARK.School or check out the ARK Media app.